Welcome to Berlin Inside Out, the podcast that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. With me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gash Burnett. Welcome back again to Berlin Inside Out for a special bonus edition on geopolitics and geoeconomics. There's indeed so much to say that we had to break out into a special bonus episode in addition to the fascinating discussions we had with Jan Eichhorn, Claudia Schmucker, and Sandra Tourdois. We're delighted today to be joined by Dr. Guntram Wolf and Dr. Alicia Garcia Herrero. I'm Benjamin Tallis, Senior Research Fellow here at the German Council on Foreign Relations, and I'm here with my friend and co-host Aaron Gash Burnett, a journalist specializing in German politics. When we last left you, we had a lively discussion around friendshoring the national security premium and whether Germany needs to change its trade model to not only better reflect its values, but also to ensure its economic future and better cooperation with allies and against adversaries. That's right, Ben. And to discuss this a little bit more, uh, we were joined actually by the CEO of the German Council on Foreign Relations, as well as Asia-Pacific economic expert, Dr. Alicia Garcia Herrero, to talk a little bit more about this and just how challenging what we need to do on de-risking, for example, is. Let's start um, with you, Guntram and Alicia. You, Guntram, you recently wrote a piece on de-risking versus decoupling when it comes to whether Germany and German firms should limit their exposure to China, to invest less in it, to trade less with it. But you also pointed out that it's not always so clear where de-risking ends and where decoupling begins. First of all, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, it's a pleasure to share views with Guntram and with you, Aaron. This thing about de-risking and decoupling, very much depends on what you mean by de-risking, what you mean by decoupling, because these are words that we economists have been using, political scientists as well, in a way that is not necessarily natural to their meaning. So decoupling is an engineering world a word which comes from tight coupling, decoupling, something that happens all of a sudden. So we've been using decoupling wrongly for years, because nothing of that sort could ever happen. Yeah, I mean, not even Russia, we've not, we've not even decoupled from Russia, uh, from uh, the Russian economy. So just imagine China. So in that regard, I think we, if we really wanted to be uh, careful about this, we should even dismiss the word decoupling. And probably we would need to bring over, though, uh, to the discussion a different world, which is, in my opinion, bifurcation. Bifurcation is something that happens slowly, but clearly you go in different directions from what used to be a, a, you know, a common ground. I think that is what is mostly happening. Now, the risking is about the concept of having too much risk, too much concentration of risk, so you reduce your concentration. At least that's the European view of it. Yeah? And, and that means that because we're so uh, dependent on China, especially for our decarbonization, but one could argue also for you know, the pharmaceutical uh, sector and others, we want to reduce that concentration basically through diversification. So these two things may happen at the same time, but that's bifurcation because we're going to be in two ecosystems. The risking, you could be in the same de- ecosystem, but you just feel you're too exposed to China in a certain sector and you just reduce your risk by changing, by basically diversifying your sources of imports or maybe the markets you operate in. So these are the two words I would go along with. 
thanks for having me. The question is, in particular, uh, when it comes to the relation with China, does it make sense to continue doing trade as one, one used to do it? Or do we have to uh, limit our trade and our investment relation in specific uh, sectors, in specific areas, or more broadly? And The broader you define the um, approach, where the more you want to sort of stop the linkages, the more um, it will be called decoupling. The more narrow you are, um, the more it is, I would say, uh, say de-risking. And, um, you know, the question is, what, what is the risk and what are the kind of risks one needs to address here? And um, there, basically, the EU is at the moment and Europe is at the moment quite closely following um, the uh, US approach um, where... Uh, the U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has defined uh, a relatively narrow concept of risk, um, uh, even though, um, of course, even a narrow concept can be interpreted quite broadly. But in principle, it's an attempt to to be quite limited um, in, you know, the areas where uh, one uh, wants to uh, reduce um, mutual exposure. You did bring up uh, National Security uh, Advisor Jake Sullivan, and I'd like to bring up his uh, speech on uh, April 27th of this year, uh, actually, along with a little bit of um, Janet Yellen's new term, friendshoring, something that we'll also discuss a little bit later in the show. A lot of people in the policy field uh, looked at that particular speech as a bit of an example of sort of the beginning of the end of the old Washington consensus, or even the beginning of the end of, of neoliberal uh, globalization. Um, you know, there's calls here for perhaps a more state-directed trade policy, especially given China's massive subsidies and its enterprises, which can with ours. Uh, in some ways, Sullivan terms this as being foreign policy and domestic policy, putting foreign policy and domestic policy more on the same page. Uh, we have also seen some pushback against that as well. Um, recently, The Economist really went in on sort of defense of the old ways of free trade, open markets, um, you know, government um, facilitating these markets, but not um, necessarily being as active as, as we might now see some, some calls for. Let's start um, with you, Alicia, first, and then to Guntram. Um, Alicia, why do you think uh, Sullivan and others seek to move uh, the discussion in this particular um, direction? The U.S. approach to de-risking or altogether their approach to China is very different to ours. And it's central national security because it is all about hegemony. I mean... If I were the U.S., I would also centrate on national security because this is a threat to their hegemony. And I guess if you define nation, if you are the hegemonic nation, it is about national security. What do they mean by national security or what do they want to avoid? Well, what they want to avoid, and they, 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 the U.S. says it loud and clear, is China's moving up the ladder, not necessarily generally, but especially military. And this is why everything they're doing, or most of what they're doing, is about either dual technologies uh, and, and basic research or, or basically sectors that are basically feeding the military sector, whether it's AI, anything which helps supersonic weapons, which is high-end semiconductors, and uh, certainly quantum computing. So you may say that that's also very useful to further move up the ladder and for China to compete with the U.S. technologically. You, you can make that argument that this is not only about uh, military supremacy, but it is also about military supremacy. I don't know whether that's the only argument, but it's certainly a very important argument. So in that regard, I think, in a way, 
one could argue, why is the U.S. doing this? And and I think if, if we were in, anybody in their shoes, if they were if, if we were an hegemony in Europe, probably we would realize that. Well, what else can you do if you want to keep that role? So that's what it is. And because China does want that role, and you know, you just have to hear what they had to say today at the BRI summit. They they say it loud and clear by now. There's not no doubt about it that they want to change the world. And they are in the right to do that. But at the end of the day, this is why we are where we are. I mean, they are in the right to try. The US in a way feels rightly or wrongly that they have the right not to allow China to do so. Let me just make two points. I mean, I, I think the first is that um, President Biden's um, trade and economic policy, trade policy in particular, uh, to my mind, is largely uh, misguided and ill-guided. Um, he um, and the uh, also Jake Sullivan claim that uh, trade in general is bad for the middle class, that it undermines American prosperity, And therefore, as you say, uh, it's a move away from an open economy towards uh, an economy that uh, supposedly is much more closed and has much more managed trade. And, you know, what we know from a lot of empirical studies is that basically that kind of approach uh, mostly hurts the middle class. It hurts consumers and it doesn't generate new jobs um, in the U.S., Now, where he is right, and th that's what Alicia talked about, is that there are areas where, of course, technology and trade and investment uh, with technology matters for hard security. And that's essentially the area where I would say also the European Union and, and Germany um, are gradually moving and, you know, under nudging from, from the U.S. Uh, security advisors, we are moving um, and limiting, uh, for example, the export of lithography machines. ASML um, in the Netherlands has stopped exporting um, certain machines that are used to uh, print chips, um, print um, the, the high-end chips with um, Uh, less than four nanometers grid size. So that's the very fast computer chips that you essentially need for the top edge artificial intelligence and other applications. Now that's dual use, right? So it is limiting Chinese military capacity. So missiles and others will be less precise because they won't have the top end chips. But of course, it also limits the economic development of China. Um, and um, the Chinese therefore claim that this is really about containing Chinese growth, um, while the U.S., I think, points to the fact that this is militarily relevant. And so so at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I think there's really these two, two parts to the U.S. and also to Jake Sullivan's speech in April, uh, one which is completely ill-guided on trade in general. And, you know, there's quite a bit of pushback against that approach, um, including in Washington, including by prominent economists such as um, uh, Adam Posen. Um, and then there is the, um, I think, justified area of um, limiting technology um, exports that have dual use, which, um, you know, I think is, is always, of course, a question how far you need to go there and, you know, what is dual use and what is not dual use. And that's always a very difficult debate. But I think conceptually, it's uh, that's that's the right approach, it seems to me, to limit the um, trade and investment relation uh, in the area where there's clear military applications. Let's explore both of these aspects. One is, I think, a very sort of domestic aspect about growth and about the well-being of people at home, whether that is in the U.S. or somewhere else. 
And then uh, another is uh, on the aspect of hard security. Uh, let's turn first, I think, to the domestic aspect. Um, we have uh, certainly seen accusations that free trade or freer trade uh, between China and the U.S., but also between China and Europe, um, actually framed in terms of, of Chinese mercantilism, you know, and that we've been on the wrong end of these consequences, specifically because uh, the Chinese uh, subsidize so much um, and, and have all of the state backing, and we don't necessarily. So um, it, it, there being this accusation of there being an unfair advantage um, there. And while that model may have uh, lifted a lot of Chinese people out of um, poverty, there's also accusations, of course, by Sullivan and others, uh, that it really left the working in the lower middle classes um, of Western developed economies behind. Uh, we see this in sort of discontent um, in terms of rising inequality. Sullivan himself on this said uh, that we sort of became obsessed with the idea of growth but didn't think about the kind of growth that we wanted. Uh, and that's often been associated with uh, the rise of populist parties, both left-wing and right-wing. And here in Germany, we have the uh, far-right alternative for Germany, the AfD, at 23% in the polls last I checked. Uh, that's second place uh, at the moment. Uh, how should we be reevaluating our old positions uh, in this uh, context? Do we really need to think about uh, whether our old free trade model actually is working for everyone? Let me perhaps start. I mean, of course, of course, we always need to think and we need to evaluate. Um, and I think that's what economists are doing regularly. There are many different factors um, that, that are happening at the same time, right? I mean, we have significant technological progress. We have trade, um, we have demographic changes, we have many, many things that are ongoing. And, you know, what economists are trying to do is essentially identify sources of changes in the labor market. And there's very good um, empirical work by, uh, by U.S. economists um, that... Um, to my mind, shows quite quite clearly that the vast majority of the trade um, is is not uh, harmful to the middle class, but is actually supportive because you know all of us. I mean, including us here. I mean, we use all. I mean, probably all the machines that we have here around of us uh, are from China, right? And they are cheap from China. And so, uh, so we are benefiting from that, right? Technological progress. Um, has been a significant factor in changes in the labor market, in particular in the low-qualified uh, labor markets. But it's not trade that has been has been driving that change. Yes, um, you mentioned the Chinese economic model. Um, yes, there are significant parts um, of the Chinese economy where protectionism and subsidies distort the economy and distort global trade. Yes, there is a need to respond to that, but that doesn't mean stop trade, right? I mean, that means um, start proper anti-subsidy investigations. I mean, the European Commission has now started an anti-subsidy and anti-dumping investigation against China in the electrical vehicle space. There are significant distortions there, and there are many other examples where those specific examples, you need to address them. Um, but um, I find it way too easy to just say, oh, China is uh, in everything so different that we, we basically need to shut them out of global trade. That's the only, only approach. Um, China and Chinese economy and there, Alicia, I think we can have a debate on that. I mean, obviously, there is a significant role of the state. But obviously, there's also in many sectors a lot of uh, entrepreneurialism, a lot of ingenuity of Chinese Chinese people and Chinese firms. And there is 
competition, right? You have also, uh, Gunsham, written that Germany is particularly exposed to geopolitical risk when it comes to China. And one thing that I uh, noted when you were talking just now about the amount of technology that we might even have in this very room uh, that comes from uh, comes from China, for example, um, is is the degree of our dependence, perhaps, that's built up uh, over time. Uh, we have uh, and, and we have talked a lot on this program before about how certain things might seem cheap until they're not. And uh, one particular example is how Russian gas seemed so cheap until we ended up having to uh, diversify away from it very quickly. And then we spent 200 billion euros to get ourselves through a single winter. So um, there is, you know, there is this notion of a deceptively cheap cost that can um, come up in the beginning only to become more expensive later when uh, sort of a geopolitical risk ends up becoming real. So it, how exposed would we be um, and what would the scale of the challenge be if, for example, China was to sink an American warship in the Taiwan Strait tomorrow? What, what kind of mess would we, we be in? So I just want to say one word and then, Alicia, I think you, you are better placed to that. I mean, just to, uh, very quickly, I mean, the, the, the Russian gas, I mean, it's not a problem to buy cheap Russian gas before the, before the escalation of the war. The problem was that we didn't have the infrastructure to buy alternatives. That was the real problem. So it was a lack of preparation for the case that Russia would stop stop exporting. As regards our dependence on China, I mean, where I am, I would be worried is about, uh, it's not about sort of the fact that we use a computer here for that's been produced in, in China. It's more the fact that China is in our telecommunication networks, for example, right? I mean, uh, there, there are na clear national security questions that arise. And in those areas, we have to worry. But, you know, buying buying cheap stuff from, from China, that's not the main problem. Being 100% dependent on China for certain technologies, that's a problem. And there we need to diversify. Uh, but buying uh, cheaply, that's not the problem. The lack of alternative sellers, that's the main problem. And in the gas case, it was very clear. We should have built these LNG terminals 20 years ago. That point was very made very strongly and nobody wanted to do it. And I think no one wanted to do it also because the cost of Russian gas as an alternative was just so, so cheap. But I do think that it also brought us into some problems, especially with our um, Central and Eastern European allies. And um, I do wonder sometimes if we are underappreciating the threat that comes from China here. Um, but uh, Alicia, I'd like to um, come to you on this question. Consider the amount that we depend on the Chinese for all of the materials that are required in our energy transition, in particular in Germany and also in other places. Is it possible for us to both de-risk and decarbonize at the same time, or is the scale of our dependence simply too high? I love your question because that's the title of a policy brief that we are producing, that we're publishing next week, literally de-risking from China while decarbonizing. Can we do it? And we make a proposal, um, which may look naive and, and not easy to carry out, but I think we need to start from somewhere. So, but let me first go back to what Guntram said about buying cheaply being such a good thing for everybody. Well, first of all, we're not paying the full price because as we know, uh, all of these uh, goods that we import from China are basically using huge amounts of, of coal that we're not paying for. So in other words, 
we know that we have a solution. This is the carbon border adjustment mechanism. It doesn't seem it's going to go as fast as desired, not whether we can even implement it because it might not be WTO compatible. But ethically speaking, I don't see why I should make a difference whether the emissions come from China or elsewhere to actually tax them. So, you know, they might look cheap, but there is a trick behind these products being very cheap, yeah? which is the cost of energy. If you thought that your gas from Russia was cheap, just check on coal in China and then you'll see what it means for China to to produce uh, very cheap goods thanks to very cheap energy. It's actually not even cheap, but you just do not want to accept that it isn't cheap. And in the same way as we didn't diversify away from uh, Russian gas, we're not, and this is your question, we're not getting ready for any type of diversification needed in a case which is much more obvious. We basically buy over 90% by now of our solar panels from China. It's not only Germany, the whole Europe. How does that compare with Russian gas? Even worse, don't think that because this is a solar panel, you can go and buy it elsewhere because China also exports about the same amount, 89% of solar panels globally. So nobody's producing other solar panels that we can import. So, you know, I I just don't buy the argument. This is cheap. Let's go. Is there a way to fix that? For Europe to fix that, it would take 10 years at least and at huge cost because our solar panels would be much more expensive. So our proposal would be to create what we call a green tech partnership. So if you look at the supply chain, it has basically four angles. Um, extraction, refining, manufacturing, and innovation. Even in innovation, China, by now, and in the this is in the course of the seven, last six, seven years, not before, by now uh, basically has more scientific publications in any of the green tech sectors than Europe or the US. So even in innovation, we need to join forces. We really need to join forces. And in the paper, we say not to substitute China. Let's not get this wrong. We need their solar panels, but we don't need to import 90 plus percent from China. I mean, this this is just so obvious to me. So we are saying that we would need to have a partnership of not like-minded. It's not about like-minded. It's about incentive-aligned countries. So, you know, I have whatever, uh, minerals, critical raw materials, that I'm happy to put to work in a different supply chain because China is monopsony. So, you know, I'm not making any money out of this because I can only send to China. What we're saying is let's create a, a supplementary, supplementary, not substitute of China's supply chain so that there is more diversity in the way we, we produce this green tech, which will always also help reduce the cost. And let me t- t- tell you why. We don't need to produce in Europe. We, we can find a cheaper place to produce. But we do need to innovate in the supply chain. And that innovation could actually make us less technologically dependent on China's technological progress. Because it might not be the right one. We don't know. If you are the only one producing a good that everybody needs, you don't need to innovate beyond what you've already done. I think we need to realize that we can't wait for 10 more years to even start this process. Because... The dependence is simply too huge. We need diversification. We do have an innovation problem. We do have a massive distortion coming from the fact that these solar panels are produced with coal electricity. So that's basically environmentally very bad. 
And last but not least, there is, of course, the question of forced labor, right? I mean, uh, Xinjiang uh, labor is used in parts of the labor of the solar panel production. Now, here we face real big dilemmas, right? Even in the short term, right? I mean, so, so in principle, if you were to pursue a value-based foreign economic policy, you wouldn't import any solar panels that contain uh, forced labor. Now, that might mean um, that solar panels would become 30 or 50% uh, more, 30%, let's say, more expensive, which then domestically is a big problem. And, you know, you asked about the rise of IFD, um, the, the far right, and it has a lot to do, in my, to my mind, also with the fact that um, the energy transition is starting to bite. And, you know, uh, people actually see that um, uh, there's a cost here, right? So we have this very big dilemma, right? On the one hand, we want to uh, prevent forced labor. On the other hand, uh, we want to continue consuming uh, relatively cheaply. Now, let me just sort of reiterate the key point that Alicia made. I think we need diversification. We need to start building alternative production lines. That doesn't necessarily have to be in, in Europe. It can be in third countries. But what is very important is to think of the entire supply chain, right? I mean, China dominates the upstream supply chain so much that if you were to just build a new factory, I don't know, in Morocco, for example, it is highly likely that it will be as dependent on China as we are in the first place. So you really need to, to sort of upgrade also the um, the upstream supply chain and, you know, uh, be ready to put some money into this um, uh, if you really want to diversify out of China. Otherwise, it's going to be very, very difficult to actually get the green transition at a reasonable price, politically, uh, feasi politically feasible price uh, done. There's human rights aspects, there's security aspects um, and, and risks of what happens if China gets more uh, aggressive, certainly with Taiwan and where that leaves us also with its record on human rights with forced labor, as you mentioned, Guntram, and also, as you mentioned, Alicia, uh, with the whole issue of, of how risky it can be even for future in innovation uh, to for, for one player to have so much of a monopoly. So I'm hearing here that there are economic cases for de-risking and diversification as well as, as security and human rights ones, which is something that we certainly are concerned about here. Uh, but I'd like to get back to, for example, your proposed partnership, Alicia, quickly, and then to Guntram, because I think that this is one example of where the whole friendshoring uh, debate uh, comes in, in, into play. Uh, now, it's important for us to, to say that this isn't reshoring. This isn't doesn't necessarily mean that we're trying to take back all of this production to one specific place domestically. But uh, the idea that we uh, diversify to um, friendly countries, um, some like-minded, etc. Uh, but but you've said that not all of these countries necessarily are like-minded. Also, that gets to the question of who counts as a friend in friend-shoring. Obviously, I think you've argued it shouldn't just be other Western um, liberal democracies. First of all, who counts um, um, to you first, Alicia? And then I'd like to come to Guntram quickly because you have argued um, on this point that de-risking China, from China can be helped by engaging with Indo-Pacific countries or even advancing the EU-Mercosur uh, agreement uh, with South American countries. So uh, what kind of engagement can actually help us? I don't believe in the concept of friendshoring because it's, as you rightly pointed out, Aaron, it's not easy to define your friends, even in real life. So imagine, you know, what it means to do this for something as complex as creating a supply chain. So I would be, for me, it would be 
just enough, basically, to have incentive alignment. What it means is that if I'm India and I know that I need a huge amount of solar panels because, you know, I need to decarbonize, surely we know India will not do it as quickly as others. But at some point, they need to do this. So, you know, it is in India's interest, as China is doing at the moment, because China only installs one third of its solar panels. The two thirds are, are sold off. And by the way, they are the ones, China is the one who needs, which needs it the most because it's the largest emitter. But, you know, it's, it's an industrial policy issue, yeah? They first export, and then once solar panels are cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, I'm sure China will, you know, in the blink of an eye, uh, install of all of those additional solar panels. It's quite smart, isn't it? So for India, if I were India, I would say, oh, I like that, but I need to produce for others first. So what do I need? I, I'd like to be in that p- partnership. Am I a friend? Well, sometimes they, they seem as they are. Sometimes, you know, we, 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 we feel maybe not. I mean, we want India to have enough solar panels. They're the third largest emitter in the world. So, you know, we are going against our values, even if, if we were to be so picky. In my view, you can be a manufacturer. You don't have critical raw materials. Fine. Can you refine them? Maybe, depending on their, you know, on their environmental rules. Can you manufacture? Probably, yes. We will innovate. We will transfer the technology you will produce. And then, you know, we have a common good. So I think we need to really start moving quickly and trying to accept that others can come on board offering something, even if they're not exactly like us. It's also a, a question, I think, um, before we come to Guntram, of systemic threat. I mean, if, uh, if China is the main systemic threat uh, here, uh, then perhaps it also becomes a question of, of, of priorities uh, as, as well. Um, you know, to put these in, uh, to put these kinds of partnerships in place um, with more countries in the Indo-Pacific to even prepare for the possibility that uh, it might sink a U.S. warship in the Taiwan Strait or act further aggressively towards Taiwan in general. Guntram, what do you make of this question of who is a friend and how we should handle that question? Reshoring is the most costly way and pros- probably the most ineffective way of increasing the security of supply chains. It's the most costly because Um, you forego the benefits of global division of labor and it's the most ineffective because you actually concentrate risk domestically and that is actually very risky because even domestically there can all kinds of things can go wrong right i mean so so reshoring is not an option so the the name of the game is diversification And then, you know, how do you diversify? Do you diversify to friends or do you diversify to whoever? And, you know, basically what, uh, just to provoke a bit the debate, what I would say is there's nothing better than having 10 enemies that are all competing with each other to sell their goods to you. Because that's the best way for you to be sure that they will actually sell those goods to you. Now, in practical terms, of course, we uh, we have to sort of think with whom do we do additional trade agreements? Where can we move quickly? And, uh, you know, there, um, my simple point uh, was with a few colleagues um, to say, look, Mercosur is a very, very important market. There is a ready, readily agreed trade agreement. That agreement includes clauses that would improve our access to critical raw material, right? It would improve our access to uh, very important critical raw materials for the green transition. 
And we are not signing that agreement. It's ridiculous. Why not? We are not ratifying it. Why not? Well, because there's uh, there's uh, some domestic opposition to it and so on and so forth. So Mercosur would be an easy win. Um, I also think uh, uh, trade negotiations in the Indo-Pacific are warranted. Um, and, you know, these trade agreements will always be easier to do uh, with countries that share similar values, similar standards than with, with others. But in principle, you know, um, diversification should be with as many as possible. And um, if you have them compete with each other um, to, to get their stuff sold to our markets, uh, all the better. Guntram, you've argued there tends to be two camps uh, in this discussion. One that says... Uh, don't worry too much about China. We can manage a crisis if and when it arises. And then there's another that um, looks to push for more decoupling uh, with only these uh, only trading with like-minded countries in these sorts of blocks. You've argued that both of these camps are wrong and that more a more targeted approach is needed in trade, especially when it comes to very sensitive technologies that might have military dual use, etc., uh, those sorts of things you've uh, mentioned that um, the Chinese are really into Germany's telecommunications network as well. This is also another uh, huge source of, of risk. We also know that China has a history of being willing to use its position uh, in certain key markets as a form of, of, of blackmail. But de-risking is a hard balance to get right, uh, isn't it? It's, it's hard to really do this in a targeted way. What are the challenges of doing that? We have a, a couple of challenges, right? I mean, the first challenge is that someone has to define what is the security risk, right? Um, and, uh, you know, what is popular nowadays is just to mention the word security risk, and then you can do whatever you want to. Um, and it seems to me that it is extremely important that we have the right institutions to define what is a security risk. At the moment, there is no European institution doing that. There are national institutions, um, but they are diverse and more or less well-functioning. Um, we know from, of course, the German debate that we do not have a national security council. So actually, okay. even in Germany, it's quite difficult within the country to actually define what is a security risk. And the problem really gets compounded because of the nature of the European Union, um, where the decision uh, is a European decision to limit trade or limit investments. I mean, trade in particular, but also subsidies as a response or single market policies. I mean, all of these responses are really European responses, but um, the security decision itself is a national one. I mean, just take again the ASML example, when the Netherlands stopped the export of the lithography machine um, uh, following US pressure, it had immediate consequences for the single market. It had consequences for uh, Zeiss Optics, uh, which is a German company producing um, the uh, key component for these lithography machines. And of course, the retaliation of China is a retaliation that will affect the entire single market and where the trade commissioner is involved. So we need European institutions um, to really put together these security um, assessments. Um, and um, uh, uh, in my brief, uh, I therefore propose to create some sort of a European Economic Security Committee where um, these national security and intelligence is actually um, brought together at the European at the European level and then um, uh, transformed into an economic appropriate economic policy. 
I'd like to ask, though, about the how realistic that might be, given how much disagreement there can be between member states as to what constitutes a security risk. So Lithuania, in particular, uh, is very clear about the security risk that it believes that China uh, poses, and uh, it has taken great steps to minimize um, all kinds of contact with China and, and seize Taiwan as, as a particular alternative there. But also, historically speaking, we haven't really agreed uh, with the rest of our allies as to what a security risk is. I mean, in late 2021, Germany was was still saying that Nord Stream 2, the pipeline that would have connected Russia and Germany, was not a security risk, that it was a purely commercial project and overruling um, Central and East European allies who warned us continuously about the security risk um, of that project. And they, of course, ended up being right um, in the end. So how do we actually manage uh, that sort of uh, common European institution come to an agreement together about um, about security risks with that kind of history? When a country of the European Union is attacked by economic coercion of uh, China, um, which China did with Lithuania, it is a responsibility um, for the entire EU to respond. Because an attack on any member state of the European Union is an attack on the entire European Union. Everybody has completely understood that. The European institutions have been uh, firmly on the side of Lithuania in that Um and so, uh, so my reading of that episode is that certainly um, the economic coercion bit was triggering a united response. But of course, you're absolutely right that there are disagreements on what constitutes a security risk. And, you know, um, of course, exposed, it's always very easy to say, oh, but that was a security risk and that wasn't. But you have to do that um, ex ante, right? You have to do it uh, before, the, before the risk uh, arises. And there, all I can say is, I mean, uh, of course, you and I and everybody has an opinion of, of what, what constitutes a security risk. But, you know, at the end of the day, it needs to be a decision, right? A decision needs to be made. Um, and that, it's, that decision is coming from governments. And I think the key point here is to say, if it's national governments doing it one by one, we create lots of problems for the single market and that's and and for the cohesion of the EU as a whole and so so i do think we actually need to to come to a way of you know agreeing jointly on what constitutes a security risk and of course exposed there will always people then saying oh but this was the wrong decision yes of course but it was at least a decision on which we all agreed we didn't necessarily see that um, that agreement, I think, on, on, on Nord Stream, for example, but um, well until later, I would say. You've argued that German firms effectively counted on the government backstopping them in the event of geopolitical upheaval when it comes to trading with authoritarian countries. So uh, this idea of privatizing the profits and socializing the risks. Um, are we sleepwalking into a similar situation with German companies um, operating in China? And how... Uh, does that alter the incentives for company, German companies to de-risk um, from China? And what should the government do about that? Well, thank you. I mean, this is a very important uh, debate, and it's a debate um, that I can assure you is is done at the at the highest level of the government. Yeah, I mean, so so people are really very actively debating debating that, and I do think um, that we do have what economists call a moral hazard problems. So, uh, meaning now firms now the government will say i will not step in i will not help you now the firms say of course we know that you will not help um, 
But when the problem arises, then you go to the government and um, because of your significant exposure and the risks to your balance sheet and to especially to your jobs, um, the systemic uh, you, uh, you have actually the leverage. Yeah. You have the leverage and right. you go to the government and you say, okay, if you don't bail me out, um, you know, not only will my shareholders lose X billion, um, but on top of it, um, uh, I have to cut uh, 5,000 jobs, 10,000 jobs, whatever. And that's the way you get you get the government money. So, so that problem is real. The question is how big it is. Uh, and that's a, that's a very much an empirical question. People at the top of the government discuss that, yeah? I mean, so, so, so for example, um, think of the... the um, the BISF investment in in China, right? I mean, so the, so that's that's going to be an investment over many years, amounting to 10 billion 10 billion euro, uh, euros. The real question is: Is that exposure going to be too big for a company like BISF? So, in case, as you say, the warship, uh, or even not not even a warship, gets sunk in the in the Taiwan Strait. Um, uh, and BASF would have to write that off. Um, would BASF survive? And, you know, people would say, okay, but market capitalization of BASF at the moment is something like 40 billion, perhaps a bit more. I haven't checked it in the last last two, three weeks. They basically could absorb uh, the write-down of 10 billion investment in China. So perhaps the investment is not excessive. Um, but then, you know, what that calculation, of course, doesn't include um, is, uh, is a specific calculation on uh, sort of job exposure. And I think the broad point here is the more we think of a dramatic scenario of a global fragmentation of trade, and especially in the case of a a Taiwan scenario, um, you know, the more we think about that, uh, the more, um, of course, the risks become very, very big um, for the German economy that is uh, very well integrated into the global economy. And so, so, so the bigger the sort of the, the global fallout, the more likely it will be that there will be some, um, some uh, government support. And, you know, that means, um, uh, as a public policy analyst, I would say it means uh, the government has to has to act now and essentially um, provide the right incentives for firms to um, to reduce somewhat their their exposure. That stops by that starts by stopping subsidies. Um, so we are currently still subsidizing certain foreign investments. So you want to stop that, um, but that's probably not enough, and probably you have to go. Um, uh, one step further and find ways of regulating excessively large um, exposures. But the way to do this is actually, it's it's not trivial because um, at the end of the day, you have to intervene into firm decisions, right? And so you have to find good ways of doing that and doing it in the appropriate way. Um, so, so I think that's basically the way people think about this. But I do think it is an issue to look at and uh, it is an issue that uh, the government is looking into rightly so um, because there are risks and um, this moral hazard issue um, is an issue that matters for taxpayers. Thanks so much to Guntram Wolf and Alicia Garcia Herrero for joining us today for that extended discussion of geopolitics and geoeconomics. We'll be back again soon on Berlin Inside Out. Do join us for that and in the meantime, check up on our show notes and be sure to follow our guests and your hosts on Twitter. Auf Wiedersehen and just...